Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Sewer Shark, a first-person full-motion video rail shooter developed by Digital Pictures and published by Sony ImageSoft back in 1992 for the Sega CD and later ported to the Panasonic 3DO in 1994. We are going to start talking about that game in just a minute, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 25, and I am pumped to be talking with you today. I hope you're all excited to listen. If you'd like to reach out to me and let me know how I'm doing or give suggestions or feedback or comments about the podcast or just talk classic gaming and technology, I'd love to hear from you. There's a couple of ways you can reach out to me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you'd like to reach out, drop me a note. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question. What is the overall historical context of the title that we're looking at? And then we will dive into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we give a numeric ranking or rating or anything like that, but we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. First, we talk graphics. Then we go into the sound and music. How does the game sound? Narrative and or story if the game has one, playability and controls, and the overall feel. And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list are the Pantheon entries. This is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. It is basically not aged and remains an amazing experience even 20, 30, 40, however many years past when it was released. Just beyond our Pantheon is our Golden Oldie category. These are the games that are still awesome experiences. I still highly recommend them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in particular. Absolutely, you're going to have a good time. They don't quite reach that Pantheon level, but they are still highly recommended experiences. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we get to our Mediocre Mentions, and these are where we start getting into the games where I cannot fully recommend them to the general population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre, but I can't recommend them just to the general individuals or general population out there. They've probably aged a bit poorly. They may have had a couple of issues to begin with, so they're not really on my recommended list. And then beyond the mediocre mentions are the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to I cannot in good conscience recommend these games to anybody because they've either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Sewer Shark. Sewer Shark is a first-person full-motion video rail shooter developed by Digital Pictures and published by Sony ImageSoft for the Sega CD in 1992 and the Panasonic 3DO in 1994. 
Now, before we can talk about Sewer Shark, we've got to talk about one of my favorite topics in gaming, full motion video gaming or FMV titles. For anyone who may be unaware, I absolutely love FMV games. I have a soft spot for even the cheesiest, most poorly acted FMV titles. I know that many people consider FMV games in general to be a tragic mistake that never should have happened, but I do not agree with that sentiment at all. I believe that full motion video and gaming represents a pivotal moment in the evolution of video game narratives, and while I would never argue that the majority of full motion video titles are true quality entertainment, the use of real actors and video in games showed that the computer and video game market was interested in moving beyond the gameplay-driven roots of the industry, and would instead begin placing even greater emphasis on storylines and plot development. It was actually an indication that the games industry was maturing and trying to reach an even broader audience, which, at the end of the day, is beneficial to all involved. Now, the first full-motion video games were not released in the home, they were actually released in arcades in the early 1980s as a means of playing a form of animated movie on arcade hardware, and the player would often be prompted to take some sort of action that would affect how the video would play out, or to which scene the video would jump to. In this way, full-motion video games in arcades were effectively a string of quick-time events, or QTEs, with the player given little choice as to how the story played out, short of being able to avoid death. So you might be asking, what kind of technology was used to house the arcade machine's video, as most will recognize that CD-ROM technology wasn't really on anyone's mind until the late 80s and wasn't utilized for full-motion video until the CD-ROM craze of the 90s? Similarly, the memory chips used in most consoles and arcades at the time just didn't have enough capacity to store the amount of data required by full-motion video content. So instead, arcade manufacturers turned to another video disc standard of the time, the high-quality LaserDisc format. And I say high-quality because for the early 80s, LaserDisc was pretty much the best possible format for both audio and video production, and LaserDisc players of the time were extremely expensive and weren't nearly as pervasive as the video cassette recorders or VCRs that most every household had at least one of. LaserDisc offered a number of benefits over the VCR format, one being the quality of the video, as the format had a video resolution consisting of 425 horizontal lines in comparison to video cassettes' relatively paltry 240 horizontal display lines. And I know that sounds like not much nowadays because now you're talking 4K or even 8K with a significant uh, number of lines or simply more number of lines than what the display technology back then was. But for the time, laser discs were where it was at. But even beyond that, Beyond the quality offered by the video format, the main reason LaserDiscs were used in early full-motion video arcade titles was because it allowed for random seeks and jumps from scene to scene, while VCRs, for those who may be unaware, were effectively linear devices. Meaning, if you wanted to skip past a certain scene in a movie, you couldn't just click next, you had to hit fast forward, and wait while the tape advanced rapidly through whatever scene was playing. Using a linear format for games that allow for various user inputs wouldn't really work to provide a positive experience for players, and the reason for that comes down to player choice. To illustrate why this is, let's take a look at one of the early LaserDisc arcade games, Dragon's Lair, and how the actions in that game play out. Now we're going to discuss Dragon's Lair in only the simplest terms here, purely as an illustration of early FMV gaming. 
If you want to know more about Dragon Slayer specifically, check out the episode we did a few weeks ago, which was focused entirely on the game. We dive pretty darn deep into Dragon Slayer, including a number of its ports and overall legacy. You should check that one out if you, if you want to learn a little bit more about Dragon Slayer itself. Anyway, in Dragon Slayer, you play a knight named Dirk the Daring, who is on a quest to save a princess named Daphne from certain doom. In order to progress through the game and save the princess, you have to traverse a series of different scenes and dangerous situations, all playing out in a very cartoon-like animated video. So the way it worked was you would be presented with a scene, and that scene would play out. And then at a certain point in the scene, driven by timing and what was going on on the screen, the game would expect you to input something. That could be either up, down, left, right, or you may have to swing your sword. If you were able to enter the correct input, the input that the game was expecting, you would then progress on to the next scene. If you didn't, then you would progress on to a death scene. And all of those scenes, if you were playing on a VCR or with a video cassette, they would have to somehow be sequential. And if they weren't sequential, you'd have to wait for literal seconds as the VCR would fast forward or rewind to the appropriate next scene. With laser discs, let's say you were in scene number one and you chose the right input, it would hop maybe to scene number two, and the video would play instantaneously effectively without feeling like there was any sort of gap. Let's say instead you're on scene one and you do the incorrect input. You might have to go to scene three. Well, because the laser discs could jump directly from scene one to scene three or track one to track three, it would still play out pretty much instantaneously without any sort of impact. So in that way, you were able to feel like you were actually controlling the narrative in a movie versus having to wait for your inputs to be processed. It was a very real-time kind of feel as you would move through each of those scenes and with the scenes truly reacting to whatever inputs you had provided. So using Laserdiscs for the game made perfect sense because the format easily supports jumping from one scene to another, creating what feels like a personalized cartoon based on the actions that you take. In comparison, imagine waiting literally like up to 20 seconds, maybe waiting for a VCR to find the next sequence or next scene to play. And that would have to happen every five to 10 seconds because the scenes would change based on inputs. You'd be asked for inputs every five to 10 seconds in the game. It would be absolutely awful. It would just feel like a disjointed experience that just would not be playable. So that's one kind of full motion video game, quick time event driven experiences like Dragon's Lair. That was one type of FMV game that we would see a lot of in early arcade machines. But there were other ways full motion video was being used at the time, most notably as background scenery for games that were themselves effectively graphical overlays over that scenery. So let's take a look at a hypothetical example. Let's say you're making a Star Wars game and you want to recreate the Death Star run made famous in the first Star Wars film, Episode 4, A New Hope. An arcade machine of the time wouldn't really have the power to create three-dimensional graphics with texture mapping, anti-aliasing, and all of the other graphical bells and whistles to make you feel like you're really in an X-Wing attacking a Death Star. But it could have the ability to play back a video of the Death Star run, while at the same time adding graphics on top of the video depicting TIE fighters, lasers, and other targets that you could position your crosshair over and shoot, causing those targets to explode. Now, the video in the scene would never really change, sort of potentially jumping from one scene to another, similar to how the quick-time event-driven games would work. 
but the graphics being overlaid on the scene can change, and you can potentially introduce more interesting controls, like targeting systems that simply pressing a direction or action button and having a scene play out in front of you just didn't give the same degree of interactivity. So in this way, you'd be able to maintain the feeling of realism and graphical fidelity present with full motion video, while at the same time allowing for more varied gameplay elements that provide deeper levels of immersion for the player. So one other shameless plug, we basically talked about this exact thing in our Rebel Assault episode because that effectively is a full motion video rail shooter based in the Star Wars universe. So if you want to learn even more about that, you should definitely check that episode out, which was one of our earlier episodes, think back episode four, I believe. So if you're interested, check that one out. So we've determined that arcades were pretty much the spot to be if you wanted to play FMV games in the 80s. But that doesn't mean there weren't attempts to bring the technology into the home, even back then, with one of the earliest examples being a failed videocassette gaming experiment called the Control Vision Console, otherwise known as Project Nemo. Recall our discussion from a little bit ago, related to how videocassettes are not a good medium for interactive experiences, due primarily to the fact that the videocassette is a linear format. But... What if you could have a linear experience while still allowing scenes to change immediately, not through random jumping to different sections of a disc, but by allowing one of multiple video streams to be played at any one time, while other video streams played concurrently but out of the player's sight? This at a high level, and I know it sounds a little confusing, is exactly what the Control Vision attempted to do. So the Control Vision was a home console that was being developed by Hasbro, Nolan Bushnell, who was the founder of Atari, and a number of other game industry visionaries, including a man named Tom Zito back in 1985. It was designed to utilize video cassettes as its main format, and it was, by extension, designed to utilize full motion video across all of its games. More specifically, the goal was to use video shot just like a movie, with real actors, but allow players to interact with the video and, therefore, cause each game to play out differently based on user input. The way that the team went about doing this is, from my perspective, nothing short of ingenious, but to understand the technology behind the console, we have to dive pretty deep into VHS cassettes and the way cathode ray tube or CRT televisions process data. For anybody who doesn't know, the CRTs are those big boxy televisions and monitors that preceded LCD technology. So when an image is displayed on a CRT television, it's actually not the full image that you see at any given time, but half of an image. So take, for example, a CRT with 480 lines of horizontal resolution. Every 1 60th of a second, the electron gun inside the television paints 240 lines to the television screen. And then the next 1 60th of a second, the remaining 240 lines are painted to the screen. This alternating pattern continues, and because it's so fast, the human eye can't really perceive the difference in horizontal lines being created. So that means that most televisions doing this kind of technology were displaying frames at approximately 60 frames per second. The Control Vision team understood this limitation, and they wondered, what happened if we would control the playback such that we used two discrete video streams, one stored in the first 240 lines, and the next stored in the remaining 240 lines. But we would only display one set of lines to the end user at any given time. If we do that, you would be able to create the illusion of multi-track playback, even in a linear-based system like video cassettes. So in this example, there would be two discrete video streams being played back at the exact same time, with the console determining which set of 240 lines would actually be displayed to the player. 
But if you manipulate the frame rate, it becomes possible to decompose those two video streams into even more concurrent streams of video. So while you might be able to store two concurrent streams of video at 60 frames per second, you could store four concurrent streams at 30 frames per second, which would then in turn enable immediate scene switching using a medium that would otherwise require sequential fast forwarding or rewinding. So to put it another way, when the player took an action that would change the scene of the game, the console would switch to a different set of lines representing an individual video stream, and like magic, a new scene would begin playing on the screen. There was no need to fast forward or seek out the appropriate scene because all of the various scenes available to the player were running concurrently with one another. So the actual story playing out was pretty much entirely linear, as you would expect from a video cassette format. It's not like you would literally be jumping to different scenes or different timelines in the video cassette itself. But players could choose to focus on different scenes at any given time, which embedded a degree of interactivity that would otherwise have been impossible on analog video cassettes. When this technology was originally prototyped, a short companion game was created to go along with the console. That game, entitled Scene of the Crime, would offer players the ability to interact with multiple camera feeds switching between them at will, allowing players to dive deeper into certain aspects of the story while other parts continue to play out along a linear timeline. If that sounds confusing, think about it like this. When you hit play on the game, four distinct video tracks begin playing at once, each on a different video stream embedded in the video cassette. As you, the player, switch between the various feeds, different video tracks, which are really just frame offsets of sorts, are selected for display, effectively hiding the other concurrently running tracks. To the player, it seems like the camera feeds are seamlessly jumping from one to another, From a technology perspective, all that involved was displaying the appropriate combination of frame and 240 lines on the screen and hiding the other streams as appropriate. This technology, while awesome sounding in theory, eh, had some severe issues in practice. Most notably, in order to maintain the illusion of continuity across all disparate video streams, every individual track had to be perfectly synchronized, which introduced complexity into both the recording and editing process, as well as in the final act of splicing all of the various video tracks together into a series of concurrently running streams. Ultimately, the technology proved to be too difficult and expensive to use in practice, and all work on the Control Vision console stopped in 1987. Before the console was scrapped, however, a couple of other full-fledged games had been filmed for eventual release. One of those titles was an evolution of the scene of the crime prototype that we discussed earlier, which would eventually become the game Night Trap. Uh, Some of you may have heard of that one. The other would, years later, eventually come into existence as the game Sewer Shark. So the actual creation of Sewer Shark, at least as far as video filming was concerned, happened all the way back in 1987 and was produced by Tom Zito, who we had mentioned was one of the driving forces behind the Control Vision console. Over a period of around a month, Zito stood up a team of actors and film industry veterans to record the movie sequences that would eventually be used in the game. The most well-known Hollywood type involved in the production was a man named John Dykstra, who ended up directing the video portions of the experience. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he's a three-time Oscar-winning visual effects genius, was one of the first employees at Industrial Lights and Magic, which is pretty much the premier visual effects studio in Hollywood, and was also the person responsible for many of the special effects in the very first Star Wars film. He was kind of a big deal, 
And it's kind of amazing that he was working on one of the earlier full motion video games that would be created for uh, consoles. Kind of an interesting uh, coincidence that somebody with such industry credentials would be associated with what has come to be known as a very negatively received genre in gaming. Anyway, one month and $3 million later, Sewer Shark principal photography had wrapped. Work continued on creating the game around the video sequences until eventually it would be ready to release. The only problem is that the console it was designed for, the Control Vision, had been scrapped. So with no other alternative at the time, Tom Zito purchased the rights to the game, along with Night Trap, and stored everything in a Rhode Island warehouse in the hopes that he would someday be able to revisit them again in the future. So now we're going to fast forward into 1991, where a relatively new format was beginning to take the computing and video game industry by storm. That format, of course, was the CD-ROM, which was a massive jump in storage technology that allowed for previously unheard of amounts of data to be stored on a single disk, 650 megabytes of data to be precise. With the proliferation of the CD-ROM and the adoption of the technology by console giant Sega for use with their forthcoming add-on system, the Sega CD, Tom Zito saw an opportunity. In 1991, he, along with several other members of the failed Control Vision team, decided to form a new company called Digital Pictures, whose focus was going to be creating full-motion video experiences for CD-ROM technology. CD-ROMs allowed for many of the same benefits as the LaserDisc technology we discussed previously, in that drives could skip to pretty much any part of the disc instantaneously, which effectively served as a more cost-effective mechanism for bringing full-motion video titles into the home. Interestingly, CD-ROM drives would actually be built even better for random seeks than LaserDiscs were. LaserDisc players of the time, even though they had the ability to randomly seek or randomly skip to different scenes on disk, were really still designed to mostly be a linear format. Or at a minimum, they expected a very few number of skips or skipping to different tracks at any given time. A lot of times, the laser discs that were used in arcade machines for full motion video titles like Dragon's Lair would break down very quickly. They just weren't designed to be having that many random, so to speak, kinds of seeks or skips that were going in there. CD-ROMs were designed to be skippable or to be seekable randomly much more effectively than LaserDiscs, so the technology actually made it so that CD-ROM players were pretty much better suited for full motion video titles than what their LaserDisc counterparts had been. Getting back to the story, as Digital Pictures began considering what games to make first with this new full motion video venture they were kicking off, the team recalled that not only had Tom Zito purchased the rights to both Night Trap and Sewer Shark, but he also had all of the original film and game assets locked away in a Rhode Island warehouse. So the team therefore decided that they would focus on those titles first and work on Sewer Shark resumed years after the game itself had originally been created. The good news for Zito and the team was that most of the time-consuming work was already complete. All they needed to do was figure out how to effectively port the title from the Control Vision to the Sega CD. So we've talked before about how Laserdiscs and CDs allow for skipping to different areas of the disc with little, if any, perceptible lag for the player. In reality, that's not entirely accurate. Most Laserdisc titles did, in fact, have a very short pause when jumping from scene to scene, and even though CD-ROMs were capable of immediate jumps, the speed of CD-ROM drives at the time, which was only around 150 kilobytes per second, otherwise known as single-speed drives of the time, 
wasn't really conducive to playing full motion video sequences with any level of fidelity and smoothness. In order to make the experience better for the player, Digital Pictures and the team had to basically recreate the Control Vision technology, albeit on a CD-ROM disc. Meaning, for Sewer Shark, four streams of video were being read from a single data stream at one time, which meant that as video sequences shifted from one scene to the next, there was literally zero pause in the action. It all felt like a single integrated video, because it was. Every single scene was playing at the same time in sequence with each other. To accomplish that feat, the team had to create their own video format and codec because the technology for creating this kind of fast-paced, fully integrated video stream just didn't exist at the time. This codec would be improved throughout the years and would be utilized in a number of digital pictures full motion video future titles. As it relates to Sewer Shark, though, the end result was that to the player, there would be no way of telling when one scene ended and the next begun. Everything was entirely seamless. Tom Zito's vision of having a true interactive movie where players control the action was about to come true. Sewer Shark would end up being a launch day title for the Sega CD in North America, hitting the market on October 15th, 1992, and represents the first instance of a home console title using full motion video as the primary mechanic in a game. That's right, Sewer Shark and Digital Pictures were trailblazers in the video game industry. Sewer Shark would end up being one of the Sega CD's highest selling titles, with 100,000 copies being sold shortly after release. It sold so well, in fact, that it would become the official pack-in game of the Sega CD shortly after launch, at which point it helped to sell 500,000 additional Sega CDs. All told, Sewer Shark would eventually eclipse $18 million in sales over the course of its lifetime, which was a pretty big success, especially for a game that sat in a warehouse for years before being resurrected. Critical response for the title was almost universally positive, with some publications even listing Sewer Shark as one of the top 10 games of 1993 in all of gaming. Other reviewers would call it a must-have game for the Sega CD, and one of the first titles to actually create an engaging full-motion video experience. Revisionist history, however, is alive and well, and the modern internet trend of roasting any and all FMV titles means that Sewer Shark is often today listed as a bad game, an example of a full-motion video experiment that didn't work and reduced gameplay too much to be considered a true interactive game. We're going to talk about my own opinions of the game in a few minutes, but I would urge you all not to simply accept those assertions at face value. Nor mine. I think everybody should experience the game for themselves. Sewer Shark's overall legacy, though, is a little muddy. It didn't spawn any sequels, though it would eventually be ported to the Panasonic 3DO. It didn't really inspire other FMV titles either, at least that I was able to find, though there were certainly games that had a similar rail shooter kind of style to Sewer Shark, like Microcosm that was released in 1993. Digital Pictures, however would absolutely have a legacy, and it would go on to be one of the premier FMV developers of the 90s. They'd end up releasing 17 different FMV titles over the course of the decade across a wide variety of focus areas, including sports games, shooters, music titles, and others. Eventually, though, FMV titles fell out of favor which had a devastating impact on digital pictures, eventually causing the company to be acquired by another company, Cyber Cinema Interactive. That company had intended to re-release digital pictures titles on DVD, 
but that ended up not happening. Though interestingly, we have seen a bit of a resurgence of the old Digital Pictures game catalog, with several remasters having been released over the last six years, including re-releases for Double Switch, Night Trap, Corpse Killer, Ground Zero Texas, Quarterback Attack, and Kids On Sight. Now, you might notice that Sewer Shark was not one of the titles that was remastered, and I personally think that's a shame. Here, you have a title that was the true first console FMV experience, one that actually did a lot of things right, at least compared to some of its FMV contemporaries, and yet it remains a somewhat forgotten piece of gaming history. Regardless of how you feel about FMV and gaming, I do believe that everyone should at least have an open mind when looking at or playing these titles. Even as an FMV fan, I recognize that there are plenty of FMV games that are simply not good. But from my perspective, Sewer Shark is a little bit different. It may not have been the most influential game ever created, but it certainly deserves to be remembered. We are now going to shift to talk about what it feels like to play Sewer Shark here today versus when it was released in 1992, a good 30 plus years ago. So just to recap, Sewer Shark is a first person full motion video rail shooter. It's an FMV game that is effectively an on rails kind of experience. So let's talk about what that means. When we say it a rail shooter or an on rails experience, what that means is that the overall control that you have as the player is relatively limited. A lot of the full motion video titles like we were talking about earlier, where you have a video sequence that's playing in the background and you have graphical elements overlaid on top of the video sequence that the, the video sequence may change depending on your actions. But for the most part, you're using these overlaid graphics or the game is using these overlaid graphics to allow you to actually interact with something, not necessarily the video stream, but something in the game world. With rail shooters, you don't really have too much direct control. So think about a hypothetical rail shooter where you're in a spaceship and you're flying down a tunnel. You will likely not have too much ability to edge nearer to any particular part of the tunnel. Whatever the video sequence is, is the video sequence. What you could do, though, is maybe shoot an object that is coming at you. You might be able to position your crosshairs over an enemy and shoot them and have them disappear because the enemy and the actual act of shooting is not part of that full motion video sequence. It's actually the graphics that are overlaid on top of that FMV sequence. Similarly, you may be able to pick a direction that will then cause the video sequence itself to change, but you're not really changing how the video plays in that you're not moving the perspective. If the video was filmed or pre-rendered or whatever it might have been, it's really not changing. It's just what scene that's playing is changing and the graphical elements that are overlaid on that scene that change. So that's the general concept behind a full motion video rail shooter. Let's talk more specifically about Sewer Shark and how it implements that style of gameplay. So the general structure for Sewer Shark is that there are effectively four main sections of the game. You could kind of think of them as levels, so to speak, but they're not called out as such within the game. Each of those individual sections has a requirement for moving on to the next section. 
And from what I could tell, the requirement is almost universally based on score. So we'll talk about how you gain score and things like that. But basically the way it works is as you're flying around in these tunnels and as the video sequence is playing, like we were talking about, graphics are overlaid and there might be monsters that are overlaid on top of the video stream. And your job is to take your crosshair and shoot as many of those monsters as is humanly possible. The more you shoot, the higher your score. At the same time, you have a certain amount of energy that your ship has, and you have to maintain that energy. The energy counts down as you do different actions. So as you shoot, your energy energy starts to decrease. Certain enemies, when you get a little bit further into the game, will attack your ship, which will also serve to decrease the overall energy that's available to you. So it becomes a balancing act between going for the high score and maintaining enough energy to be able to get through the game. And by the time you get to the later levels or the later sections of the game, it does become pretty challenging in order to actually maintain your energy and not crash. Because if you get to zero energy, you will die. You will crash and you will not be able to continue. Now, as you're playing the game, interspersed throughout are FMV cutscenes that tell the overall story. And these are the best kind of FMV cutscenes because the acting is over the top, over the top in such the in such a good way. It's it is the best possible FMV you could get because the actors are just chewing the scenery. They are their facial expressions are great. Their overall actions are are just superbly over the top. Uh, so those FMV sequences are what are actually telling the story of the game in between the actual gameplay elements as you're actually shooting monsters and navigating these tunnels and, and all of that good stuff. Now, as you do go through the game, I did mention that the game actually does get harder. And there's a fair number of monsters that are included in the game. They do start to progress. At the beginning, you start fighting monsters that basically just either sit there or they move around a little bit in the tunnels that you're navigating. So they're relatively easy to shoot. They also have relatively low score. As you get a little bit further, you start getting into monsters that give you higher score, but also have the potential for attacking you and taking some of your energy down. When you get even further into the game, you may encounter creatures or mine robots that will try to crash into you. And if you miss them and they crash into you, it doesn't matter how much energy you have, you die. So it can be pretty unforgiving. Now, the interesting thing here is with the game, nothing is really randomized. Well, I take that back. The navigation of the different tunnels is randomized, but the actual enemies that occur on a given sequence or in a given uh, section of the game are not randomized, which means as you play the game more and more, you will start to memorize where the different monsters are, which becomes vitally important as you're trying to maintain a high enough score to go from one section to the next. And I will say that the the most difficult section from my perspective to be able to progress is when you're going, it's right before the halfway point, I believe, of the game, if I'm remembering correctly, where you have to get to, I think, 75,000 points. And in order to do that, you have to really prioritize shooting enemies that have higher target values or higher point values than others. And there's going to be some scenes where you have to choose between shooting at the easy enemy or shooting at the more mobile enemy that gives you more points. And 
when you first go through the game, I can almost guarantee you, you will fail. If you don't crash already or lose your energy too much, you will fail because you don't know what targets to go after. And some of the targets move relatively quickly. So you're not going to be prepared to shoot them and get the score that you will need. So there is a degree of repetition here, but we'll talk about how that plays into the overall experience in a little bit. Suffice it to say, there is a pretty good variety of monsters. Some of them are are pretty difficult, or at least they are very dangerous, I'll say, if you miss them. Because like I said, if you get hit by a mine robot later on in the game, you die. It doesn't matter how much energy you have, it will just completely explode your ship. So there are really two main components of the overall gameplay loop for the game. There's the navigation through the sewage tubes, and there's actually the act of shooting enemies. So let's talk about navigation, because if all you were doing was having a pre-rendered or a full motion video sequence playing, and all you had to do was shoot monsters in a tube, that's not really the most interactive experience. It could be fun in short bursts, but it's really not going to engage you as much as what you would like from a game. So Sewer Shark actually does something a little bit different. As you're going through these tunnels you will have various navigation callouts come from your robot companion. And later on in the game, you'll follow a mythical sewer bird. Don't ask why to try to figure out where you need to go in this tunnel system. And the way it works is it all goes off of the cardinal directions. So North, South, East, West. And when the, when the robot, when your companion robot is calling out directions, he will call out based on a clock. So if, if he wants you to go North, he'll say, 12, or if he wants you to go to the right, he'll say three. And at any given time, he's going to give you three different directions for any section of the sewage pipes that you're going through. And you have to pay attention to when the on-screen display with given arrows will blink. And if they blink in the right direction in the right sequence, you will navigate to that tube. And you have to do that by, I believe, holding the B button, if I remember correctly, and pressing in the direction that you would need to go. So there is a little bit of, I don't want to say Twitch gameplay, so to speak, but it is a little bit of Twitch gameplay here in uh, the way you navigate the tubes, which does add a bit of depth to the overall experience. It's still not a deep game per se, but it does add some depth. So let's talk more specifically about the combat. And we were talking about this a little bit. There are various creatures, and those can include things like these oversized rats, which are pretty much the easiest uh, creatures in the game. There's also flying bats that keep swooping in that they seem to be more of a distraction than anything else. You, I mean, a lot of times you will shoot them just by accident almost because you're trying to shoot other things and they, they manage to swoop in front of your, your uh, shots. So no biggie really with those. The scorpions that steal your energy, those are the first enemies you encounter that can potentially hurt you. They also are the first enemies you encounter that have a relatively high score associated with them. So those are some of the enemies you want to prioritize when you see them. The mining drones, those are the mine robots I was talking about earlier that will try to ram you and blow you up. And then at the very end of the game, there are a series of energy pulses that get released into the tunnels that will absolutely wreck you if you get hit. And they come very fast and in huge numbers when you get to that section of the game. So you have to be on top of it. You have to be on top of the overall experience to be able to avoid that much damage, or you have to have a lot of energy when you get it that scene, because otherwise you're going to fail right at the end of the game. And that's not going to feel so good. 
because the whole point of the game and the whole way to beat the game is to maintain your energy while getting a high enough score to move on to that next section of the game. And the way the sections are split up and the way you'll be able to tell that you got into a next section is the call sign that your sewer tunnel co-pilot calls you changes. That kind of represents a checkpoint of sort throughout the game. And that basically means that if you reach one of those call sign shifts, you're able to continue from that point. So it's not like there are no continues in the game. There is no save system in the game, but you can play through it in one go and you can continue from a certain section multiple times. So whenever your companion or your co-pilot calls you a different call sign, that means that you have hit one of those checkpoints. Uh, The only thing is when you hit those checkpoints, you will always keep the same energy that you had when you got to the beginning of that checkpoint. So let's say you get to checkpoint number two. And for whatever reason, the first section of the game was you didn't do that great. It was very difficult and you only have a small amount of energy going into checkpoint two. Well, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble because every time you continue from checkpoint two, you will always start with that same amount of energy that you originally reached that checkpoint with. So it might be certain situations where you get up to a certain checkpoint and you kind of have to start over because you don't want to keep that low energy. You can't keep that low energy because it's ultimately going to lead to you failing the overall game. You really do. I can't stress this enough. You really do need to keep your energy high enough to be able to progress. If you lose your energy, if the energy drops too low, you're going to get into six situations later on where you will get hit. Absolutely will get hit. I don't care how good you are. There's going to be stuff where you you get damaged and just the act of shooting will drain your energy. So you need to maintain your energy at a high enough level that it doesn't become an issue, especially at the very ending sequence of the game. If you don't have a ton of energy going into that, you're going to be in trouble. Now, while you keep the same energy for each checkpoint, every single time you hit a checkpoint, your score is effectively reset. And that's okay because each section, each of those four sections of the game, there are four different call signs you'll eventually be called. Each section has a different score requirement. So it doesn't matter if you start from zero or you start from the score that you were when you got to that checkpoint. That singular section is what has a particular requirement, and the game tracks that as you move on. Now, I will say that there are some ways, or there's at least one way, to replenish energy as you play the game. As you go through the game, there are recharge stations, which are hidden in several of the tunnels. There's a couple per section, I believe. There's at least one or two per section. And the way that those are called out is your co-pilot actually calls out and says, hey, there's a recharge station coming up. They don't tell you where. They don't tell you what direction the recharge station is. They just tell you it's coming up. And it's up to you to look at the screen. And at that certain time, you will see either red lights or green lights pointing left or right. And you have to navigate to the green light tube. If you navigate to the green light tube, you get your energy recharged by around 10,000 points. And I believe you start the game with 30,000 energy. So you want to try to keep it as close to that as possible, if not higher sometimes, depending on how you're doing. If you go down the red tunnel path, there's really no penalty for it other than you don't get the opportunity to recharge your energy, which, like I said, can be a death sentence later on in the game. And then I just have to call out again. The FMV acting in this title 
absolutely glorious. So before we get into talking about the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics and the sound and the overall narrative, I do want to look at what the box says, because as you all know, I enjoy looking at the back of the box just because I find it just really interesting how the development teams or how the marketing teams for these games have presented their titles to be purchased. Because a lot of times, especially back in the 80s and 90s, you may not have had magazine articles that tell you about how a given game is or what it's like. You certainly didn't have the internet to go onto YouTube or similar kinds of sites and see gameplay videos to make your own decision and say, oh yeah, that looks cool or not. A lot of times you're in a video game store and your decision, your buying decision has to go off of what the box looks like and what the box says. So for Sewer Shark, the back of the box says, climb into the cockpit of Sewer Shark for the Sega CD and you're going to be blown away. Featuring digital video of live actors, CD sound, and the high-powered action of a simulation shooter, Sewer Shark is a completely new breed of game that takes you into a realm of gameplay almost beyond your senses. Interact one-on-one with Ace Tunnel Jockey Ghost and the devious fat-faced Stenchler. Your mission's clear. Transport supplies to human outposts deep in the sewers and fry anything that gets in your way. React with lightning-fast speed to flight instructions transmitted by your computerized droid. Navigate, fire, and streak deeper into the toxic tunnels. Miss a turn, and you're history. But make it all the way, and you're in Solar City, maxing out the beaches, babes, and awesome rays. Sewer Shark for the Sega CD. It's a whole new game. And then there are several images on the back of the box that show certain gameplay elements from the screen with some captions. One says the sewers are infested with ferocious radigators, which is the, I guess, the little rat thingies I was talking about earlier. Another image says first person cockpit perspective will blow you away as you streak through sewer locks deep into the tunnels. And finally, a an image of Stenchler himself that says revolutionary digitized video of live actors puts you face to face with characters like the devious Commissioner Stenchler. So I don't know the, how that would have sold many people looking at that. For me, I would have bought it day one <laughs> because I think it just looked awesome. It sounded great. And when they started talking about the video sequences and having actual digitized actors in there, I was sold. Now, personal experience here, I didn't actually buy Sewer Shark in the box per se. I got it when I got my Sega CD as the pack-in title. So I did get Sewer Shark through that. I didn't actually buy a retail copy of the game when I personally purchased it back in the early 90s. And I would imagine just based on some of the sales numbers, a lot of people got their Sewer Shark via the fact that it was a pack-in title for the Sega CD, not so much from the retail box. Anyway, we are now going to talk more specifically about individual elements of the game, and we're going to start with the graphics. So I have to say, for a Sega CD FMV title, the graphics here are surprisingly decent. There are a ton of compression artifacts. There's dithering, there's color limitations, but honestly, not bad. The FMV cutscenes were were fine, no real complaints other than the general uh, overall quality of the graphics were limited because of the Sega CD hardware, just not able to replicate all that many colors. So it's not going to look like some of the FMV games that you might see on more FMV capable systems like the Compact Disc Interactive. 
but for the Sega CD, it actually looked okay. And the graphics in the sewer tubes were actually quite good, especially compared to some other FMV on rails titles. And the one I think about here is Rebel Assault. And Rebel Assault on the computer looked pretty darn good. Rebel Assault on the Sega CD looked like a single flat shaded color. A lot of the environments were just so poorly defined and detailed. Sewer Shark, by comparison, has well-defined graphics for all its environments. It maintains a good pace. Uh, Rebel Assault ran horribly on the Sega CD. It displayed very few textures and colors, and there was really no sense of speed with Rebel Assault, which Sewer Shark actually has a great sense of speed, and Rebel Assault, in comparison, came out later in the Sega CD's life. So Sewer Shark, being an earlier title, a launch day title, still performed better than Rebel Assault, even after companies had more opportunity to understand how to work with the Sega CD. And speaking of that sense of speed, or that, that overall feel of just the smoothness of the game, the transitions between scenes in Sewer Shark were incredibly smooth, like wizard level smooth. I've played a ton of full motion video games, and I have played a ton of full motion video on rails titles, and almost all of them have a little hitch when you're playing the game, where you pick an action that causes the full motion video sequence to move on to a different scene. There's just, and it could be a split second, but there's always something. Sewer Shark had none of that. Sewer Shark, the transitions were immediate. And I can only imagine that this is because of the way they designed the video codec and the way that they converted the Control Vision video into the Sega CD format basically allowed them to make those transitions incredibly smooth. But I got to say, without having that context, I would have wondered how the heck they made it happen. Because the FMV switches between scenes, you wouldn't even know that it was playing a different video file or a different scene on the disc. It was kind of crazy. It felt like magic. And imagine how that felt to the uh, much younger me, the, the teenage me, when I was playing this game for the first time. It blew me away. Even today, it still looks pretty darn good. And especially for a Sega CD title, it looks good. I will say I am curious about the 3DO version. Generally speaking, the 3DO had better FMV visuals than the Sega CD, but I, I just don't have it. I don't have the 3DO. I have the Sega CD. I want a 3DO. I just don't have one today, and I didn't feel like emulating the title at the moment. But I am curious how that looks since most of the time full motion video and 3DO looked pretty darn good, especially in comparison to the Sega CD. Um, overall, graphics... I have nothing to complain about. I am I am pleasantly surprised with how well the graphics look today. Moving on to the sound and the music, there's really not a ton of sound or music in the game. I mean, there's the spoken dialogue. There's some of the shooting that happens when you shoot the monsters and the monsters making noises and stuff like that. I mean, that's just kind of par for the course. But the music that did exist was surprisingly good. It's not really, I wouldn't say it's particularly memorable, and it all feels like pretty much the same track that just evolves over the course of the game, but it does mesh well with the action and the environments. It's got a nice techno kind of beat going, and it augments what you're seeing on the screen in a good way. So I honestly 
don't have much to say about the sound and the music. It's it's one of those things where it was definitely a background kind of thing. This is not the kind of game where you're going to listen to a particular track and start humming it elsewhere. But within the context of the game and while you're playing the game, it fits. It, there was nothing jarring about it at all. It was just part of the experience and I, I enjoyed it. I didn't have any issues with the sound or the music. Moving on to the narrative and story, this is this is the narrative for uh, for Sewer Shark, and it is just, it's so good. It is so good in an FMV kind of way. So here's what it is. You play as a sewer jockey, and your mission is to navigate a vast maze of sewer tubes and eliminate all of the monsters and threats and anything else dangerous down there that live underground, all in order to maintain the safety of Solar City, which is kind of like a beach resort where all of the more affluent members of society live. Also living in Solar City is Commissioner Stenchler, who's a bureaucrat who seemingly is responsible for ensuring the safety and cleanliness of the sewers that run under the city. So you, along with your co-pilot Ghost, set off on your daily duty, along with your trusty navigation robot, whose name is Catfish, and along with one of Ghost's companions, another sewer jockey named Falco, you eventually find a hidden path, or Falco actually finds a hidden path, that she believes will lead to the surface of the city. Obviously, you're dreaming of white, sandy beaches, so you set off in pursuit of the golden paradise of Solar City, while the commissioner keeps trying to throw obstacles in your way to prevent you from reaching paradise. So overall, I mean, the story was passable. If you look at it from just a purely objective, critical standpoint, the story was passable. It, it, it worked. It, it told a cohesive story from beginning to end. It was kind of far-fetched, a little bit nonsensical. But it worked, and I thought it was charming in a cheesy sort of way. And like I was talking about earlier, the FMV cutscenes that actually deliver the story were the best kind of FMV cutscenes. There was overacting, but not bad acting. And there is a difference. There is a difference between bad acting that you look at and just shake your head and overacting that you look at and shake your head with a smile. This is the latter. This is the overacting, giving you a smile as you play the game. And I have to say, the narrative and the full motion video sequences and all that all that good stuff, I probably enjoyed it more than anyone should have. And I don't know if that's just me because I'm an FMV fan in general, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was surprisingly endearing. Moving on to the playability and controls, one of the biggest complaints about FMV titles, generally speaking, is the interactivity of the game. And I'm here to tell you that Sewer Shark is actually one of the few pure FMV titles that has a fair degree of interaction. We talked a little bit about this before. Basic interaction involves you moving your targeting reticle around the screen to shoot at enemies, and you use your crosshair to put them in your sights, and then you shoot them with the A button. You also have to listen for navigation coordinates from your companion, which are mapped to the cardinal directions, but clock-based, so 3, 6, 9, 12. Sometimes during cutscenes, there will be an actual shout-out to other directions as well, and that uh, directional input or those directional directions 
are randomized. So you do have to actually listen to the cutscenes. You can't just skip them and expect to succeed. You have to listen to what they will tell you to do. So you do need to pay attention and you need to remember the coordinates. At different points, you will be prompted to enter those coordinates. You pick a direction, and if you get the right one, the story continues absolutely seamlessly. If you get it wrong, if you pass the first couple of, of sections in the game, which are very forgiving and let you basically get whatever you want wrong, once you get past those couple of sections, if you pick the wrong direction, you will likely die a fiery death and have to restart that section all over. There's also another mechanic in the game that we haven't talked about yet. And that is your hydrogen meter. So at certain points in the game, and this generally happens, it feels like the more you shoot or the more enemies have been attacking you, your hydrogen meter might go red. If that happens, you have to hit the C button on your controller and that will discharge all of the excess gas. Now, the controls, I mean, they're all pretty simple, but they actually feel engaging. And as the game goes on, the speed and targeting difficulty ramps up. So you actually have to pay attention and be on your toes. That said, like we talked about a little bit ago, enemies aren't really randomized, so it does come down to a little bit of memorization. Once you've played the game enough, you could probably beat it in one go. But there are no lives and there are limited checkpoints, so there's still a degree of difficulty until you become a quote-unquote master at the game. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? I was surprised. It was it was a pleasant, fun game to play. It is not a deep experience, though. And there is a little bit of frustration given the scarcity of checkpoints and some of the point totals that you need in order to progress further into the game are pretty steep given some of the targets that you have. So there is going to be some repetition here. You are going to have to restart the same section over and over and over again. But you will learn and you will develop your skills such that you will be able to progress into the game. The good news is that it's not really a long game. And I say that's a good news that's a good news story because not every game has to be a 40-hour experience. There are some games that shouldn't overstay their welcome, and Sewer Shark is one of those titles that does not overstay its welcome. It's really pretty short, and because of that, it's pretty much perfect for a B-movie level romp on a Friday night with friends. I could picture sitting around having a couple beers and popping in Sewer Shark and just laughing at the ridiculous cutscenes, at people failing to press the right directions or missing the target and, and kind of making fun of them and stuff like that in a fun way. I could see that being a really enjoyable Friday night. Maybe I'm a little bit of a nerd, but regardless of that fact, it could still be really fun. And across the course of the game or over the course of the game, you will laugh, you'll cry, you'll feel angry, you'll feel happy, you'll go on a roller coaster ride of emotions. But at the end of the day, it's actually fun. It is surprisingly fun. The simplicity and the smoothness of the game, along with all of the cheesy FMV goodness, just makes it an endearing experience even today. So what is our verdict? Where does Sewer Shark sit? Does it make it into the Pantheon? I'm going to say right up front, this decision is going to be a little bit controversial. I want you all to remember, I love full motion video games. I also love cheesy movies, so it's almost like this game was tailor-made for me. And I have to tell you, Sewer Shark absolutely delivers a schlocky B-movie-level experience with more interactivity than most pure FMV titles. There is just enough gameplay and different mechanics here to keep you engaged, but not enough to get you bogged down with a ton of difficult choices. 
to put it into perspective, the way I like to think about it is Sewer Shark is like getting a bucket of popcorn at the movie theater. You don't really need it. Nobody needs a bucket of popcorn. And you probably aren't going to finish it. But it is delicious in a kind of gross way until you get your fill. That is what Sewer Shark is. You will feel gross, but you'll also have a good time until you feel gross and then you want to do something else. But I do recognize that this game isn't going to be for everyone. For me, though, it is a purely guilty pleasure. All that being said, it's not quite Pantheon worthy. I I wish I could, but I can't put it in the Pantheon. But I am going to rank it as one of our golden oldies. For what it is, it holds up well today. And I truly believe if you let yourself just play the game with an understanding of the controls, you'll probably have a good time. I don't know that anyone is going to play it for hours. And as a matter of fact, I would recommend you don't play it for hours. But I bet you'll have some fun for whatever period of time that you do play it. I also want to mention... Do not believe the people who simply jump on the FMV sucks bandwagon. This is a surprisingly fun game, especially given the fact that it was literally the first console title with FMV as a core gameplay mechanism. As such, Sewer Shark deserves recognition as our newest golden oldie. was our episode on sewer shark i hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed creating it if you'd like to reach out let me know how i'm doing or give advice comments feedback or suggestions for future episodes i would love to hear from you and there are a couple of ways you can get in touch with me you can either reach out on twitter i have a handle which is at classic gaming t i also have an email address which is classic gaming today at gmail.com so feel free to reach out drop me a line and we can have a great discussion before we call it for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the cinematic platformer Flashback, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of the game. At the same time, I recognize this podcast lives pretty much everywhere that podcasts live in general, and it would be great if you would be so inclined to leave a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts or harvesting a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. But it is about trying to make the best possible podcast that I can. And in order to do that, I need feedback from you, the community, to make sure that I am hitting the mark and delivering the content that you all want to listen to. We are still growing. We are still developing the community. We will always be in growth and development mode. And I want to make sure that we are delivering the best darn podcast that we can possibly make we'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on flashback until then remember sometimes the games of the past are just as good if not better than the games of today goodbye everyone <laughs> <laughs>